Let's end this year well by celebrating the wonderful hope and light that comes through this Christmas story. And, and a reality that has kind of sunk in in my own life this last uh, couple of weeks preparing for this Christmas season is just how remarkable it is that over the course of this month, roughly three billion people are going to be decorating their houses, they're, they're going to be giving uh, gifts to their family, they're going to be feasting and celebrating because of one peasant child born 2,000 years ago. I mean, think about that. That's just remarkable. It's astounding that nearly half of the planet Earth is going to take nearly an entire month to celebrate the birth of one peasant child 2,000 years ago. I mean, there is no greater parallel in all of human history that something so seemingly insignificant turned into something that quite literally for the Western world is the very center of human history. We changed our calendars based on the, the time that Jesus was born. It's truly remarkable. So I did a lot of thinking about why is this such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal that this peasant birth 2,000 years ago becomes the center of human history? And so I'm going to take us on a little bit of a journey. It's a journey that might be a kind of unconventional. This is not going to be your kind of standard Christmas um, sermon here. We're going to walk a journey, and I guarantee you every couple of minutes you're going to be asking yourself the question, what does this have to do with Christmas? And we will know that by the end of this, uh, of this message uh, today. So hang on. It's going to be a little bit of a journey, and it's going to start with two questions. These are the two questions that every single civilization in every single era has asked of themselves. These two questions. Number one, who is the creator? Every civilization in every era has asked, who is the creator? And then collectively, they start imagining who this creator might be, and then they create various systems around who this creator might be. And then the second question that everybody asks in every era, in every civilization, is how can he be compelled to bless us? How can we compel him to bless us? Every civilization in every era has asked those two questions. And the answer to those two questions determines everything about a civilization. It determines what our identity is. It determines our meaning. It determines our purpose in life. It determines what's right and wrong. And it keeps us accountable. Because if we can develop systems about who God is, then develop systems about how he can be compelled to bless us, then it keeps us accountable to fall in line. Because we want God's blessing. We don't want his anger. We want God to kind of answer our prayers. We don't want him to ignore us. And so when we think about who God might be and how we can compel him to bless us, it matters and it shapes and defines every civilization that has ever existed in every era. Now, this is true of American history as well. If you studied American history, we're a fairly young country, but it was founded on this idea of a Judeo-Christian ethic, founded on kind of this concept of the God of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, and then this sense of mission, the sense of American identity started swelling and ended up resulting in what you might have heard is manifest destiny. We don't use that anymore because it's highly offensive, but you know, kind of 18th century, even 19th century, this idea that God has ordained America for expansion. God has ordained America for blessing. God has ordained America as the greatest country on earth. That kind of manifest destiny based on what we think about God and how we can compel him to bless us that has shaped and defined American history itself. And that has been true of every civilization that has ever existed. So we're going to take a little bit of a, of a stroll. It'll be a quick stroll. It's going to move pretty fast, but we're going to go through entire human history. You ready? In about 15 minutes. Here we go. 
Let's start with animistic tribes. So this is, this is humankind at our most primitive, right? This is humankind untouched by modernization, untouched by modern religion. They're just sort of left to their own imagination of where they came from. Now, if, if we can try, nearly impossible, but if we can try to put ourselves in the place of a tribe, let's say a nomadic tribe in the Amazon that still exists today or, or the Philippines or Papua New Guinea, these are areas that we have had relationships with tribes, right? And they're left to just imagine where they came from. And, and what do they kind of experience in life? Well, they rely entirely on the rising of the sun and the warmth of the sun. They rely entirely on the rivers that come from the mountains. They re- rely entirely on the food that comes from the ground. They rely entirely on the fires that they can build, right? And so they think, and it's understandable, that we come from these things. Therefore, we, they must be creators. And so they worship the sun and worship the rivers, and they worship, say, their ancestral spirits, and they have this kind of spiritism. Uh, everything that they feel or experience is related to a spirit, either an evil spirit or a spirit of the ancestor. And so what happens is a worldview is created in animistic tribes. And here's the thinking. Darkness envelops us, but light can dawn if we appease nature and the spirits through sacrifice. And so they have sacrificial systems to appease nature and to appease the spirits. Now, this has been happening since 200,000 BC, right? 200,000 years in the, in the, in the middle Paleolithic, uh, Paleolithic period. It, there's evidence that even early man started to create religious systems around their gods and rituals and rites around death and around birth and even in cave drawings, notions of who God might be and what he might want from us and how we can compel him to bless us. Let's fast forward a little bit to about 2000 BC, right? Let's talk about Eastern faiths. There are two main Eastern faiths. There is Hinduism and Buddhism, but there are about half a dozen dozen other major Eastern faiths, including Confucianism, Taoism, and Shinto. And, And those faiths have similar sort of structure around dharma, so cosmic law, that that there's a cosmic energy, not necessarily personal god or gods, but cosmic energy. Then there's the concept of karma, that we are rewarded for what we do, whether good or bad. Then there's the concept of maya, which is sort of the magic energy that produces human beings. And then there's the samsara, which is reincarnation. So if you uh, do bad things with your life, you will come back lower on the food chain. You do good things with your life, you come back higher on the food chain, and the whole goal is to separate ourselves from the illusion of of the physical world around us and meld sort of into this cosmic energy. To put it more precisely, the Eastern mind perceives that darkness envelops us, right? Things are not as they should be, but light can dawn if we liberate ourselves from the perceived world into the pure cosmic knowledge consciousness. Eastern thinking. Let's fast forward a little bit, and I'm going to combine a bunch of systems, polytheistic systems, and historians will pitch a fit on this, but uh, Egyptians, Mesopotamians, and Greeks, all kind of around that 2000 BC to 700 BC zone, uh, very complex systems of polytheism emerged. Multiple gods were kind of invented because you want to explain things that are happening here on earth. You want to answer those two basic questions. Who is our creator and how we can compel our creator to bless us? The same questions 
all of humankind has asked since the dawn of mankind, these polytheistic systems were put in place. And so in the Egyptian mind, there's Ra, the sun god, not necessarily worshiped like a tribal person would worship, but personified. So Ra is a sun god, but also has a body. And there's, there's Isis and other gods, I mean, dozens and dozens of gods uh, who were created. And these gods sometimes are good, sometimes they're evil, sometimes they interact with human beings, sometimes they don't. This is true of the Egyptian society. This is true of Mesopotamian society, inventing dozens of gods and creating all kinds of drama between the gods and how that interacts with us. Um, in, in Greek culture, they created over 1,000 different gods to explain everything that was happening around them. And all of these civilizations, Mesopotamian, Egyptian, and Greek, all were dedicated to appeasing these gods because they wanted to compel the gods to bless their lives or to bless their nation, right? If you need an idea about what these pantheon of gods are like, all you have to do is check out Marvel Comics. So, uh, you know, there's, there they are. That's Odin, you know, the big one. Uh, then there's Thor and uh, who's that, Loki, right? Those guys. You like Marvel? <laughs> Very good. So that's kind of the pantheon of gods, sometimes good, sometimes bad, sometimes interacting with human beings, right? And so the thinking among polytheistic cultures is that darkness envelops us. Things are not as they should be. But light can dawn if we appease the gods through devotion and sacrifice. Now let's get into kind of our neck of the woods. Let's get into, into biblical territory. So let's talk about Hebrew culture. Where did Hebrew culture come from? Hebrew culture came really from two places, Mesopotamians and Egyptians, right? If you know your, 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 your Hebrew history, Abram was called from Mesopotamia. So Mesopotamia uh, was where all these pantheon of gods were worshiped. Abram worshiped all the pantheon of gods in Mesopotamia. But then in the scripture, a new God emerges, ultimately called Yahweh. This is the Hebrew God. So there's the God of Dagon. There's the God of all the surrounding tribes. But here comes a new God, the God of Israel, which is what the early Old Testament refers to him as, the God of Israel. He comes to Abram and says, listen, I need you to, come, to go from your Mesopotamian culture, and we're going to start a whole new system. Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, Mesopotamia, Leave your relatives, leave your father's family, leave all, the, all these traditions, right? And go to the land I will show you. And there I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. And then this new system begins. It's a Hebrew system. There's Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, and then there's this interaction. How can Yahweh bless you? Obey his law. Again, it's the exact same questions asked of everyone throughout history. Who is the creator? How can I compel him to bless me? How can I compel him to bless our nation? That's the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament. The Hebrew nation striving to know God and striving to appease God so Yahweh, their God, can bless them. Now, over the course of Hebrew history, as they're trying to find out who God is, by um, the seventh century BC, so roughly thousand-ish years later, they became monotheistic. And so by the end of the Old Testament, they're now talking about the one true God and that all other gods are false gods. And so that's really when uh, Israel became monotheistic, worshiping only one God. And so here's their man mindset. That darkness envelops us. Things are not as they should be. But light can dawn if we worship the one true God and obey his law. That's roughly the summary of the Old Testament. Now let's fast forward to, to Christianity, right? There's two major uh, streams of Christianity uh, that trace their origin all the way back to the Apostle Peter and, and even Jesus Christ himself, Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. Now everyone who has a 
Catholic background or an Eastern Orthodox background, you fell off your chair because I combined them. They split. Very, very long time ago, they split. And yes, they, they have different traditions, but they share a lot in common. They share this sort of high church culture. Um, lots of traditions, a priesthood, many sacraments that are performed by the priest to kind of mediate between God and humans. And so this is this, this high church Christianity. And the mentality there is, is this, that darkness envelops us, things are not as they should be, but light can dawn if we follow the traditions and sacraments of the church. That's the thinking. Now let's get to the last 200 years. I mean, right where we are and this church, Rancho Church, comes from this tributary of Christianity called evangelicalism. It's uh, fairly new. In fact, it's the latest tributary of, of Christian history. It is arguably the most influential cultural phenomenon of the United States of America. It is waning right now. In fact, it is crumbling. Evangelicalism is kind of crumbling right now. And so its, it's history has risen and it's probably on a steep, well, it is on a steep decline. Um, and evangelicalism itself as a movement is kind of figuring out what their next you know, future looks like. But evangelicalism is a, is a pretty sophisticated religious system birthed from Christianity. And here is essentially the definition of evangelicalism. There's a lot of debate around this, but I like this definition the best. Evangelicalism asserts that if we receive Jesus as Lord and Savior and commit to a life of purity and holiness, God will rescue us from judgment, bless our lives, and bless our nation. And over the course of the morning, I've seen a lot of heads nod. Yep, that kind of sounds familiar. That's perhaps what I'm used to. It's what I was raised in. I was raised in an evangelical framework, right? My, I came to faith as a, uh, as a high school student in an evangelical church, Rancho, solidly evangelical, right? And so I was raised in this system. It essentially teaches that all of us are sinners and deserve the wrath of God. God is very angry with our sin. Jesus steps in and receives the wrath of God for us. So the wrath of God that was heading our direction now heads towards Jesus. If we believe the right things about him and live the right way, we will escape God's coming wrath and go to heaven when we die. If we're faithful, God will bless our lives. If we're faithful, God will bless our nation. That's evangelicalism. The mindset is this, that darkness envelops us. Things are not as they should be, but light can dawn if we believe the correct doctrine and live good moral lives. That's evangelicalism. So that was a quick 15-minute journey through entirety of human history. How did it go? We did all right? All right, we survived. All right. Some of you are asking, what does this have to do with Christmas? Well, you might have noticed a few common threads in all of those worldviews, from tribal animism to Eastern mysticism to polytheism to Christianity, all the monotheistic religions. You might have seen a thread in our journey. That darkness envelops the world. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that things are not as they should be. There's a problem that we are all facing. It's the problem of disease and the problem of the pain that we cause each other, the problem of violence, the problem of abuse, right? The problem of war and bloodshed, and ultimately the problem of death itself. So every single civilization from a quarter million years ago to right now has that understanding that darkness envelops the world. There's also this thought that, you know what, we contribute to that darkness. None of us is perfect. We can tend to hurt each other as well. And so God must be very angry with us collectively, and God might be very angry with me. And so a lot of these worldviews peddle in guilt and shame. It's, yes, yes, I am a sinner. I am broken. I'm a problem. I have shame. There is guilt, and God 
you know, it must be punishing me by not blessing my life and I might even go to hell when I die. There's all of these things that sort of weigh heavily on us from these worldviews that say darkness envelops the world, the creator is angry at us and the creator is probably angry at me. Another common thread in all of these worldviews is that we must appease the creator because the creator is angry. What can we do to appease him? More devotion, more sacrifice, honoring God, right? Be a part of sort of religious traditions. Be a better person. Stop sinning. Stop doing wrong things. Then maybe, just maybe, God will be appeased and his anger will turn to blessing. If we're better, more faithful, more sacrificial, God will bless our lives. That is the same thing every civilization in every era has thought. It is the same thing that Christianity as a religion thinks as well. But here's the problem. All of this has failed. Tribal animism has never brought light to the world. Eastern mysticism has never brought light to the world. Polytheism never brought light to the world. Monotheistic religions never bring light to the world. Christianity as a religion, in my opinion, does not bring light into the world. Why is that? Why is it that all of these systems fail? We can take a look at Romans chapter 2, verse 20. And this is the Apostle Paul. He's being very sarcastic here. So he's just dripping, oozing with sarcasm. And he's kind of just tearing apart the whole, you know, religious industrial complex, right? He says, you, you know, religious leaders in particular, you think you can instruct the ignorant. And, and he's just kind of making fun of people who are sitting up on church stages behind church pulpits, <laughs> instructing people, right? I've got knowledge about God. I know the truth about God, right? I have all the divine wisdom. So you think you can instruct the ignorant and teach the generations the way of God? It's pretty arrogant. For you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. And this is what religious leaders do. They, they claim to be holders of truth and interpreters of God's law, what he wants. And, and by everything they say, here's who God is and here's how we can compel him to bless our lives. That's the whole system that's been going on for a quarter, million years, and it never brings light to the world. Religious leaders, you're so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. Not even religious leaders can obey the very law that they claim to be holding and preaching. Every religious worldview fails. No religious worldview has brought a single photon of light to this world. So why do religious efforts fail to fill the world with light? Why do religious efforts fail to fill the world with light? From tribal animism to the Christian religion right now, why does it fail to bring light to the world? Well, because I believe there's a total ignorance of the Christmas story itself. There's an ignorance of the Christmas story. Now, we know the story. We've heard the story. We read Luke chapter 2. But then we, we receive the Christmas story as yet another religious tradition when it is meant to turn it on its head. Let me explain. I'm going to read to you a bit of the Christmas story out of Luke chapter 2. And I want you, just in your own head and in your own heart, I want you to compare the simplicity of this Christmas story with the entire you know, saga of human history striving to find out who is our creator and how can I compel him to bless my life. Notice the difference in the Christmas story found in Luke chapter two. That night, the night of the birth of Jesus, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, 
guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior of the Lord has been born today in Bethlehem. Beautiful, right? Simple, low-key, quiet, right? Just compare that Christmas story with all of the drama of all the worldviews of all of the ages in humankind striving to find out who is God and how can I compel him to bless my life. Here's this story. And this story is very simple in this way. God isn't asking us for anything. God is simply giving us everything. That's the Christmas story. God doesn't ask for anything here. He doesn't ask for one thing. He doesn't say, by the way, I'll give you forgiveness and I'll give you love and I'll give you blessing if you obey me, if you're devout, if you're good, if you're religious, if you're moral, if you're right. God just gives and he gives and he gives through Jesus. God gives us good news at the birth of Jesus. Good news. The light has come, right? That's the good news at the birth of Jesus. The light has come. The light of heaven has come. That's why we sing songs about light. That's why we have lights around our house. We will today, this afternoon. That's why we have lights on our tree. We have lights because the birth of Jesus is the light of the world. Not all these systems and worldviews that have shaped civilization through, throughout a quarter million years of human history, but the giving of Jesus Christ from heaven itself. And it's not just good news, it's a promise of great joy. So basically the message is stop the struggle. Stop the, 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 the drama between humankind and God. Stop striving for God. Stop striving to know who he is and stop striving to, to know how we can compel him to bless our lives. Just receive the great joy that comes by God giving us everything. It is good news of great joy. And it also comes with this promise of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It's a declaration that comes at the birth of Christ. Peace on earth. Peace does not come through humanistic worldviews. Peace does not come through religious worldviews. Peace comes when we embrace the gift of heaven that is the birth of Jesus Christ that first Christmas morning. It is God who did all the work. He requires nothing of us. And because there's peace with God purely as a gift of grace, we can now live peaceful lives. We can be peacemakers. Why? Because we've received love, I can be loving. We've received grace through Christ, I can be gracious. We've received peace with God through Christ, I can be a peaceful person. And the really cool part about this for me is this. When God made his providential decision to fully express who he is, when God made that providential decision that at some point in human history, I'm gonna show the world fully who I am. That doesn't come through nature. God doesn't express himself fully through nature, in part, yes, but not fully. God doesn't express himself fully through the written word, even the Bible. He doesn't express himself fully through the written word, in part, yes, but fully, no. When God in his providential, deci providential decision making decided to show fully who he was, how did he show himself? As a baby. As a baby. And, and not a baby born into privilege or born into wealth or born into power, but a vulnerable baby, powerless in every way, 
a peasant child, utterly impoverished, owning nothing, humble, you would even say humiliated. If you read chapter 2 with any knowledge of ancient civilization, if you read chapter 2 of, of Luke, you would be utterly embarrassed for the family. An unwed mother with child. According to ancient tradition, she could have been put to death. It was a capital crime. And so you read Luke chapter 2, here's an unwed mother in shame, and she's, she's from Nazareth. And, and so this is a squatter's village. They don't even own the property. This is a group of families who decided, we're going to build little huts on somebody else's property and call it a city. That's Nazareth. That's where they come from. Utterly poor, utterly shameful, utterly unjust. Here's the Roman Empire that forces them to go across country to another city that's packed with people. There's no place for them to stay. All they've got is a barn. And here is this baby, poor, peasant, vulnerable baby, born in a barn. They found rags to wrap him in and put him in a feed trough. That's the full expression of God. How does that compare with all of these other worldviews and all these other religions? That God's a God of vengeance and power and war and violence and he's wrathful and, and he deserves punishment and penalty and that's what the mind of man creates. But when God decided to express himself in full, he did so through this child 2,000 years ago. Humble, poor, oppressed, rejected. That's why John 1.9 says, the one who is the true light, not the false light of animism and mysticism and polytheism and monotheistic religious systems, that's fake light. It doesn't actually bring real light. That's old light. But the new light that dawns is the light that dawned on that first Christmas. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That's Jesus. A humble, impoverished, vulnerable, powerless baby. So the birth of Jesus shows the world that God is a God of humble, compassionate, forgiving love. That's the message of Christmas. And it's totally different than all the other worldviews throughout human history. The birth of Jesus shows us that God is a God of humble, compassionate, forgiving love. And so this Christmas, I would encourage us all to kind of declutter our minds from the religious traditions, declutter our minds from kind of the, the norms of what we would think of our relationship with God. We need to know him more so that we can kind of figure out how to appease him and please him so that maybe he will bless our lives. If we can get free from that, I mean free from that and simply enjoy Christmas. That simple story that when God chose to reveal himself fully, he did so humbly, compassionately, with nothing but forgiveness and love toward us, expecting nothing in return. Let that be your Christmas story this year. Simple love received at the birth of Christ. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we uh, thank you for the simplicity of this story. And we compare this simple act of love and grace and humility as you express yourself fully in the person of Jesus Christ at his birth. We compare that with all of the other complex systems throughout human history and how 
people have wrestled with you and, 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 and strive with you to try to figure you out and to please you and to manage our failure and to manage our guilt and manage shame and try to figure out what you want from us so that maybe we can be good with you and maybe you can bless us and maybe you can give us eternal life. God, help each of us to be free from that entirely and simply free to enjoy the love that you have for us expressed fully through Jesus Christ. You just gave us Jesus. And so through him, particularly at his birth, through him we see your humility, your selflessness, your sacrifice, your love. As Jesus grows older, as the full expression of our heavenly father, he is nothing but loving and kind and gracious, working at his own sacrifice to reveal how gracious our heavenly father is. And that message of love so offended every political power and so offended every religious power, they put him to death. But it was love that, that resurrected him from the dead and it is love that lives now forever in our hearts and our minds in our relationship with you. So God, we receive the love of Christ even here and right now. Even for those of us who have been walking with you for decades, we, we renew our commitment to receive the love of Christ. Your gracious, forgiving, humble, sacrificial love. Help us to keep our minds uncluttered, our walk with you uncluttered. Help us to just enjoy the peace of knowing you love us, that you forgive us, that we're right with you only because of what you did for us based on nothing we've done for you. We receive your love and then we pray that your love would transform us. That your love and your grace and your forgiveness and the peace that we've been given would transform us to, into more loving people, more gracious people, more kind people more forgiving people, that we might not only receive this, this new light that is dawning through Jesus, but we might actually be the light of heaven around us as we love like Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. 